0: first immediately or you will be subject to arrest. it now. A boss ain't nothing but a thief on a time loan. 128 been war you play Nintendo. On some shooters so put the bridge down or feed us to the killer bees. We get what we deserve Life Bury me with my MP3s. Write my manifesto in 72 CPI. Life's just a game. You got cheated, never learn. I write these songs every bridge that ain't Every
1: cop car that ain't been... welcome to this is america july 21st 2022 on today's episode we speak with minerva a full spectrum midwife herbalist and abolitionist about the struggles ahead now that roe v wade has been overturned and how we should be thinking about organizing our communities to meet our needs directly we then switch to our discussion We touch on the mass police repression in Akron, Ohio, in the wake of the police murder of Jalen Walker, the growing housing crisis, and much more. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. Hundreds of independent truckers are holding pickets and disrupting commodity flows at the Port of Oakland in protest of a new law that threatens a large section of the workforce from being able to pick up jobs from shipping companies. Meanwhile, in cities like Seattle, Detroit, and Boston, Starbucks workers have gone on strike in the face of ongoing attacks by management against newly unionized stores. In Minneapolis, camp defenders mobilized to push back against yet another tent city eviction. According to Unicorn Riot, on July 8th, dozens of community members rallied at the encampment in the early morning hours and starved off what many thought was an eviction attempt by the city. One resident told Unicorn Riot that she heard the police will stay away as long as there's defenders present. In Lockport, New York, mobile homeowner's rent strike has now entered into its third month. Meanwhile, tenants in Laurel, Maryland, launched a rent strike recently over housing conditions and have forced landlords to the table, as tenants in Louisville, Kentucky, have also launched a rent strike to demand repairs. Community members in Albuquerque, New Mexico, protested after police murdered a 15-year-old during a SWAT raid resulting in a house fire in New York, copwatch media has reported that sunset park vendors are organizing to push back against police harassment meanwhile solidarity actions with the ongoing protests in akron ohio have taken place across the us from banner drops to militant street marches in pittsburgh pennsylvania sacramento california the bronx new york and portland oregon in tampa florida a massive crowd took the streets and protested outside of the christian nationalist moms for liberty conference In Santa Monica, California, anti-fascists mobilized to defend a Planned Parenthood clinic that had been targeted the week before by Proud Boys and other far-right groups. Anti-fascists and defenders of reproductive freedom rallied in front of the clinic and also protested against a small far-right rally, successfully keeping the fascists from harassing the clinic. On Twitter, one person wrote of the demonstration Anti fascists held it down for folks seeking services from Santa Monica Planned Parenthood today. Folks kept fascists antagonized at the waterfront so clinic defense could focus on access to services. Well coordinated and organized. A win for reproductive rights and community today. In Dallas, Texas, Elm City John Brown Gun Club reported on Twitter on July 9th. Thousands of locals marched in 107 degree heat. The message was clear, we will not go back. Fascist streamers were kept out. All medical emergencies were handled. Dozens of armed protesters kept watch for potentially motivated mass shootings and vehicle attacks. In Chicago, Illinois, Forced birth protesters were vastly outnumbered by supporters of reproductive freedom on the streets. In Orlando, Florida, hundreds took to the streets of the downtown to protest the Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade. Demonstrators destroyed several signs held by fascist anti-choice preachers, and were able to resist a later attempt by the police to cordon off the area, according to Tequesta, Black Star. Sabotage and targeted vandalism has also continued often under the moniker of Jane's Revenge, across the so-called United States. Reports of vandalism to pro-life centers have been reported in Nashville, Tennessee, Raleigh, North Carolina, Haley, Florida, Overland Park, Kansas, Madison, Wisconsin, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In Worcester, Massachusetts, according to a communique posted to Abolition Media Worldwide, two fake
0: clinics in Worcester, Massachusetts, Problem Pregnancy and Clearway Clinic, have been attacked. The assholes who lie to vulnerable pregnant people about abortion to confuse them and convince them to not seek abortions discovered this morning that their buildings had been redecorated with paint and broken glass.
1: Meanwhile, Atlanta, the fight to save the Atlanta Forest from destruction and stop the construction of the so-called Cop City Project continues. Check out a recent message from a tree sitter linked in our show notes and on the Defend the Atlanta Forest Instagram. In early July, a report posted to Scenes from
2: the Atlanta Forest wrote, This last week, barricades were erected to protect the South Atlanta Forest from police incursions with chainsaws. The north gate was sealed off with an array of concrete, thick wood, broken glass, and cunning. To make matters worse for the police, a lovely bucket of shit was chained to the gate as well. In conjunction, a banner reading, Give Up, was aptly placed on the front of the barricade to rightfully celebrate the withdrawal of subcontractor Reeves Young from the Cop City project, as well as what appears to be, but not yet confirmed, main contractor Brassfield and Gorey. Barricades will continue to be constructed as long as the South Atlanta forest is threatened by cops and is in any danger of clear-cutting to build Cop City. If the cops keep trying to enter the forest on UTVs with hopes of terrorizing forest defenders, abusing non-human animals, or killing trees with evil tools, they will be consistently met with treacherous roadblocks. On July 4th,
1: the communique took credit for busting out the windows to a construction firm involved in the Cop City project in Springfield, Maryland, and a few days later, another report wrote that a larger surveillance post was taken down. The communique read, We noticed that police escorted
2: a white work truck with boom lift affiliated with the city of Atlanta to install a very large and approximate 40-foot wooden pole on Key Road near the prison ruins in South Atlanta yesterday. For what appeared to be a high-altitude surveillance tower, us beavers just so happen to love a good hardwood pole, and will surely gnaw down more if you bring them. Thanks for the snack, APD. We saved some leftovers for you on the side of the road in what also appears to be a mounting pile of broken surveillance cameras in solidarity with forest defenders holding it down in the South Atlanta Forest, the Beaver Gang.
1: Outside of the forest, a chorus of activity continues, with supporters continuing to drop off supplies to tree sitters, canvas neighborhoods and put up posters, and across the U.S. drop banners and put up graffiti in solidarity with the campaign. There's also been a widespread speaking tour taking place across the U.S., so be sure to check out our upcoming events list for more info. On July 17th, as the Atlanta Community Press Collective reported, law enforcement put up concrete barriers and private property signs at one of the entrances to the forest, drawing backlash. Lastly, mark your calendars because there is a week of action coming up to defend the Atlanta forest that kicks off on Saturday, July 23rd. Be sure to check out and follow scenes from the Atlanta forest and defend the Atlanta forest on social media and on their websites for more updates. And now for some upcoming events. On July 3rd, there is an event happening at the Wooden Shoe Bookstore in Pennsylvania, building power with the lights out. From July 23rd to the 30th, there is a week of action called to defend the Atlanta Forest. On July 25th, there is the International Day of Solidarity with anti-fascist prisoners. On July 29th to the 30th, there is the Dual Power Gathering happening outside of Chicago. On July 30th, Buffalo Books is hosting a block party in Buffalo, New York. From August 4th through the 9th, there is the Earth First Summer Gathering happening in the north coast of California. From August 6th through the 7th, there is the Montreal Anarchist Book Fair. From August 13th through the 21st, there is the Anarchist Summer School, the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking taking place. On August 20th, there is the Rock Against Racism Mutual Aid Benefit Show being organized in Reno, Nevada. On August 27th through the 28th, there is the Philly Anarchy Fair happening in Philadelphia. On September 3rd, there's the Halifax Anarchist Book Fair. And on September 10th through the 11th is the New York City Anarchist Book Fair. Then on September 11th is the Austin Anarchist Book Fair. On September 11th through the 18th, there are various running down the walls events being organized to benefit political prisoners. On September 24th through the 25th is the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair. And not to be outdone looking forward to October 15th is the upcoming Radical Atlanta Book Fair. And finally if you value It's Going Down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis and you have the means, please go to itsgoingdown.org/shop and that's itsgoingdown.org/shop and help us grow. You can sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one-time donation. You can follow the podcast, check out our RSS feed, follow us on whatever podcast platform you prefer, listen to us on the radio, tell a friend about us, follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. And finally, if you enjoyed this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us. Enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon.
0: Hey, everyone. Um, Minerva, she's a pronouns, um, identify as a queer, black, student, full-spectrum, midwife, herbalist, um, abolitionist, uh, a little bit everything in between and beyond, and yeah. Feels like
1: a good stopping point. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We just wanted to pick your brain after you know the Roe v. Wade decision, and people are obviously out on the streets. There's a lot of talk about how we should organize, uh, what infrastructure we should be building, uh, things we can support, and obviously we wanted to talk to people that are already doing the work. And again, thank you for joining us and hopefully we'll touch some of these really uh, broad issues but just to start off in what ways does the Roe decision change the discussion around reproductive justice
0: Mm, great first question and thank you again so much for opening up this container for me to get to be in dialogue with you all about this um, vital work. Uh, how does the row decision? So yeah, a lot of my work professionally has been in um, both direct care and uh, organizing in reproductive justice um, nationally. And I would say that it sounds terrible, right? This moment is a cracking that I feel that was not only that people who've been a part of the movement knew that it was coming. So the folks who I think have really moved in the ways in the movement that I've admired wouldn't take it as like necessarily a surprise, but as much as it is, um, you know, a sign of, um, in some ways that, the work that has been going on and the organizing and movement building that has been taking place is actually working. You know, this is a, a very intense, violent response. That's not isolated. This is a a response from um, <laughs> the, some of the most violent among us, um, stripping folks of bodily autonomy and um, access in a way that Perhaps we've yet to experience in this capacity, um, but also recognizing that role um, was the floor and not the ceiling. It was a it was a um, necessary step in federally getting folks um, access to care at a time when it was um, still very much led on the ground, underground movements, um, both done well and both done not very well um just to you know because there's a lot of conversation about it going underground and the scariness that that can provide but there's also liberation the cracking one of my great teachers Bronte Velez um shares that in one of their um pieces I listen to often about like there's liberation in the cracking right and so I think that this time is is um not surprising as a queer black person navigating the world right I I, I don't know if surprise is the right word anymore, Um, but definitely a moment to go up and mobilize and coalesce in the ways that people have always needed and always deserved, Um and recognize that the Hyde Amendment came out shortly thereafter, the Roe, Roe, the Roe, Roe v. Wade decision, Um, therefore basically restricting access for folks who are um, low income, poor, brown and black, um, queer, differently able from accessing the care that they deserve, um, uh, with the exception of states stepping in and using um, state funds to cover folks on Medicaid. So with all that being said, yes, this moment is different um, in my lifetime. The trajectory of how this was going, even from the start, felt very clear um, to me. Uh, even though I wasn't alive for it, but I have family members, a long line of organizers and abolitionist folks who, who, you know, have been watching how, how, how this could, no pun intended, go down.
1: <laughs> you know, so many people have pointed out that for many people in different areas, you know, they've already been living under a, a post-row reality. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. just curious, you know, as like people like yourself have been organizing in in that context like what do you think are some of the lessons that we can draw from those that have already been doing that work
0: Absolutely um it's a great 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 question as well um i'm really called to acknowledge my ancestry to start to answer this question, um, the name Minerva is a familial name and um she was great grandmother. Um, well, my my, my mother's grandmother, Cher Cropper migrated from Mississippi and continued the work of organizing and healing and doing the work in community settings um in Detroit, Michigan, right, where uh there was there was no Roe v. Wade. There was still um, limited protections. There's still limited protections and access for Black folks in this particular stolen land now. Um, but recognizing that this work is ancient, um, abortion, pregnancy release, miscarriage goes by so many names. They're all different, right? But, like, this work of human bodies navigating pregnancy navigating um options that exist is not a new phenomenon <laughs> and it it often baffles me just how wild um some people who have created positions of power think they are overbodies so I'm like okay well people are going to continue to be pregnant people are going to continue to conceive. what options exist for them always have and always will um and so I think that uh for the the ponderings of what now what next right i think also the question goes back to like just how just how ancient is this work actually like um my background is also in ecology um and so getting to study the ecosystem mycelial networks different other than human creatures and how they also navigate pregnancy release and navigate like it just kind of connects it to a larger vision of like okay, let's kind of like the very human way that we're going about even discussing Roe and all of that, but then connecting it to like, whoa, this is a really interesting, larger thing of how we're thinking about our ecosystems, ecology, um, all the interconnectedness and layers that exist for people, especially people presenting pregnant in this country, in this society right now. Um that has been really resourcing for me. So I've been leading with that as a form of regulating my nervous system to be like, okay, this is like, yes, this is urgent. This is urgent time, but also, you know, how do we also in the sense of it being urgent also reduce our need for, because urgency is a tool of capitalism. So how do we also in the moment of it being urgent, people needing care, people not having access, people like struggling to find have work, hotlines I've you know have navigated this work in various ways and the urgency is is going to be there and also as folks who are either wanting to support people on personal levels collective levels professional levels I think it also looks at a time of like not meeting not meeting the violence with violence or moving or moving in ways that are so are not going to be incredibly um Resourcing for folks in the movement long term too. So I don't. I, it's a long-winded answer to say. I don't even know if I answered your question, but <laughs> that's just honestly where um, I'm feeling called to share about that today. And also, there has been a large, large, incredibly large grassroots network of abortion funds and organizers, abolitionists, anarchists, midwives, doulas, handholders hotline workers that have been rocking it for so 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 long and i think that they're finally getting their moments that they've never really had a lot of money is being funneled into establishment abortion rhetoric right now um always has been and um i think there's also i'm seeing an uptick in, in folks and voices getting getting re- recognition that really haven't had it to this point um unfortunately
1: all that different work being done. There's so many people in the streets right now. It feels like things are at this crossroads. I'm just curious, you know, where you think, um, like what we can do to like help these new people kind of fit into the work, I guess.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, where to fit in first, I think listening gets underrated. I think in organizing spaces and, of uh, care spaces. Um, so re, reproductive justice for folks who are maybe new to the term. And it's get, it gets thrown around a lot and it, it troubles many, troubles a lot of black folk in reproductive justice because black, the reproductive justice term was founded, um, by this radical coalition of black women. And so just doing history on the etymology of terms and how we use them is a great place to start. Um, and, and also where to, how to move in the work. So people are like, what, what, what can I do? How can I show up? And abortion funds, I think are still one of the most foremost ways to do that. If you're, if money is calling to you to support or resource folks in various ways in a practical support network, meaning IE transportation, meaning, Care bags, meaning um, getting access to pills, meaning whatever that looks like. Um, Abortion funds, your local abortion fund is an excellent place to start. Um, And also the National Network of Abortion Funds is a great place to start if folks are just looking for a way to kind of connect on their community on a community level. Um, There's some big names out there doing abortion care. I won't speak of them, um, but. Most folks usually know who they are, and um, I think that it would be helpful for folks to also look at the ways in which um, we know how larger institutions can move, and there can all there can be some good that come from them. But there are a lot of on the ground folk who who are ready, have been ready, and are willing um, way before this decision was announced to continue to show up for folks and accessing care um, out of out of clinical models of care um, because um, maybe be a little suspicious of clinical models who are now ready to jump on the bandwagon of SMA self-managed abortion um, or pregnancy release things because um, which a lot of them were moving in particular ways for particular reasons but um, I think that there's a jump to this movement to like, oh, self-manage is like hot, it's trendy, it's what we need to do now. Um, but there are folks who have been willing to support people way beyond um, clinics we're unable to operate in this country currently. So I would say definitely start as local as you can. Look for full-spectrum midwives. Um, look for full-spectrum doulas in your community as well. Folks who are um, Committed to supporting folks, maybe it's specifically through abortion, but also recognizing that there's um, a full spectrum of experiences that pe- people can navigate in a pregnancy that can lead to various outcomes. A lot of it's focused on obviously people navigating an elective abortion or an elective pregnancy release. Um, you know, but what does that mean, right? By their choice, there's folks who I've sat with who have needed to now navigate a miscarriage, which is also a spontaneous abortion. So there are so many people impacted um, from this decision that are not, you know, the rhetoric has been around like, you don't want your baby. And it's way, way larger, way, way more, more vast than that. So um, start where you can.
1: You brought up a couple terms that m- some people maybe. uh, they haven't heard before they might need a little more information on self-managed abortion mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also uh doulas and midwives. Can you describe <laughs> for us just what you mean by that and kind of how all that fits into the broader discussion of the work that we're talking about?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, struggle using self-managed abortion, um, now for my own rhetoric, because I am quickly seeing how it's getting co-opted pretty quickly, um, on a large scale, and that scares me. Um, and one of my midwife teachers, um, definitely refer, encouraged a language shift, I think, for me, um And also honoring it as a pregnancy release. But I'll say S- SMA because I know that is a term that more people are becoming familiar with. So essentially self-managed abortion or pregnancy release is anything uh, that can happen outside of a clinic. So right now, um most, <laughs> you know, it's... <sighs> you know, it has been overturned. So th- this is a totally different conversation. It's new to me to talk about it in this context. Um, Still, still pretty fresh on my brain of how to navigate with folks in this way. Um, but essentially self-managed abortion, that terminology was created to identify folks who were choosing to um, essentially manage and navigate their own abortion experience that happened outside the clinical models of care it does not mean that people navigating self-managed abortions don't reach out to folks on hotlines don't reach out for support from their community you know I think that terminology can can sometimes provoke it as if it's like it's still kind of giving a hierarchy to to, to clinical care versus like which is which we know like home care, out of clinical care, wherever you're choosing to release your pregnancy, it doesn't mean it's less than having a clinical abortion. So I think that, um, you know, in in essence, a self-managed abortion is um, an abortion experience that is essentially outside of the clinical scope, but still has um, still can have the same level of care and provision that one would have, maybe even more so than they could have in a clinical setting. Um, yeah, and so there are, uh, which I can provide some resources maybe towards the end um, for folks to get more information about these places or if you know folks who are navigating a self-managed abortion, um, places to go for additional either legal medical um emotional and or um needing some support navigating a self-managed abortion that is both based on peels and herbal support so i can provide those now or later but um yeah in short that's self a self-managed abortion um and um doulas and midwives right um yeah ancient 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 work. Um, the etymology of doula is, is, uh, some folks have reclaimed it for, you know, I, I still use the word doula. I don't, I use it less personally. I kind of am really moving in like midwifery for language to describe myself, but also I still identify as a doula, um, identify as a deaf doula, full spectrum doula. Um, but yeah, the word doula, uh, the original terminology of it was woman like I think a woman slave or something very, 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 very deeply and deep and layered. Again, the kind of definition of a midwife, if you look were to Google it, right? It's someone who's with women that can look like a lot of different things and recognizing that not all folks midwives who tend to folks um physically one, are not all women and not all women are midwives. Also folks Various birthing folks or folks who you can to be with someone to be with someone that can mid essentially midwifery shows up in a lot of different ways. When people think of midwives, they think of folks who catch babies, and that is very valid. And definitely, <laughs> a lot of midwives support folks in a full, you know, a whole pregnancy experience. And also, midwives have been tending to folks navigating abortions and miscarriages and stillbirths and um maternal maternal and fetal um fetal demises and um a lot of different things. A lot of voices show up and many, many midwives also are often trained and skilled in the form of doula care. So still providing emotional, um, and physical support practices. Um, although there is a, there is a separation and a difference. Um, whereas mid- midwifery typically looks at, um, more of the, um, yeah, the physical happenings of a body, but it doesn't mean that they're also without the cognizant, like understanding of what's happening for a person holistically too. So, um, yeah, a different model of care, um, and there's a um, deep, deep, deep past with how um, you know midwives, doulas, healers, herbalists um, were literally uh, murdered. Right? Um, they were uh, have been under threat um, on this stolen land for a very long time. Still, don't really have the full. Uh, consideration provisions of care. Not that maybe that's a good thing, um, because you can still kind of move in ways that are, um, more attentive to the needs of folks beyond the realm of capitalism. Um, and so, yeah, all that being said, um, midwives and doulas are different, um, but there is a lot of connectivity.
1: For those that are in areas, uh, where there aren't, you know, trigger bands and stuff like that, uh, mm-hmm. In places where there might be an influx of folks that are coming in order to get care, what do you think are some of the ways that people should be thinking about uh, support and helping others continue that organizing and helping that out? I know mm-hmm. some people are talking about, you know, getting back to doing, you know, clinic defense because we know that a lot of mm-hmm. folks are going to be coming after, um, those clinics and trying to shut them mm-hmm. down mm-hmm.
0: yeah um macro and micro levels for sure to it all um i think that first and foremost i think that's people moving in ways that are okay let me let me back up a little bit in in movement work right i think sometimes there are a lot of folks looking at it from a lot of different angles and spectrums and experiences like how to show up doing like whether that's clinic defense, whether that's looking like patient care, whether it's looking like transportation support, whether it's looking like funding support, all these different ways of showing up. I think through it all, which I've, you know, in various lives as like organizers, doulas, you know, all these different iterations, I think through all of it to not lose sight of the importance and the power of caring for the folks navigating so whether that is showing up to do clinic defense, is this with, with good conscience in the best interest of the folks who are seeking care? Um, there is a lot of fear right now, a lot of shame, a lot of just like, you know, it is an act of not only the act of bravery to show up and try to organize and do clinical defense and do and show up in those ways, but also, if we get to just like the real like spirit level of folks who are like deeply scared, deeply afraid, deeply wondering what to do, navigating like unthinkable, unthinkable, unthinkable realities regarding a pregnancy at this moment in time in this country. Um, I really um hope that the piece about the care, doesn't get lost in the work for like liberation and movement building um because i think that we we really stand to lose a lot more if in the midst of needing to organize or needing to radicalize or needing to like coalesce around provisions of care and and trigger laws and all of these like Super important things that you can't have one without the other, but at the same time, not losing the care and safety for for the for folks who are needing like practical support now. Um, so I think that that looks like honestly getting to a, I think national national work. Yes, that's great, too. But like really getting down to a movement level work, local work, local level work, which I talked about earlier therefore i I guarantee and if if anyone's in a part of (laughs) the u.s that they feel like no one's doing the work here i i am certain that someone is but maybe they're just really moving quietly and really moving underground with it and i know it's hard to find community in a time where something is illegal and you can be not only pro you know Prosecuted and, and beyond, right? Like they are really, I think that there are some, um, the trigger laws and just how they're moving on a policy level, state by state, and now having a federal backing. It's, um, it's a scary time. It's a scary time for people to navigate, scary time for people organizing. Um, and yeah, yet I still feel that, uh, we have to be very, very careful and very safe as
2: information, right?
0: About how we use social media, about how we use how we communicate um to folks who are navigating on our devices and yeah, moving in ways that are really keeping the full scope in mind, right? So actions that are also including the folks who are maybe navigating without the same safety provisions that one advocating has even at this moment. And how can we continue to move in ways that to both stand in defense advocate while also holding care to be at the core and the cornerstone of this work um i think that is my biggest piece of hope and advice at this moment because i see in the ways that it could really shift to be away from care i've experienced that um before in in Various settings.
1: How can the growth of self-managed abortion shift the discussion around pregnancy, birth, and bodily autonomy?
0: I wish there was a way to describe that, like, maybe there is a way to describe that. Like, this moment, as much as it is incredibly f***ed up, it also is posing a very, very, very unique opportunity to envision beyond the scope of capitalistic enterprises rooted in abortion care provision. Um, I have seen it on an independent and large conglomerate level about the ways in which that this work um, has been co-opted under Roe. Um, and I think that there are a lot of folks who are trying to do some really good work and, and getting people access and supporting people's access, but also recognize, like we said earlier, that access has never quite been, most folks have been moving in a post-war world without it being officially on the books, right? So, um, I think that bodily autonomy, um, honestly, body liberation, our bodies moving beyond the realm of white heteronormative violent capitalism, I think I've never probably felt more inspired by what is possible, I think, in the work yet, um, which is, like, a loaded statement. I'm sitting with all I'm feeling by saying that. But to also say that, like, how can we use this moment to envision? Be- we we don't want to go back to Ro. Let Let me just say that. I don't. I want to envision beyond that. Always wanted to be envision beyond that. There, there's someone always benefiting from the status quo and I think that what would it look like in the midst of supporting folks empowerment and body autonomy and like connecting on this very deep ancient level about how to move in community and how to move with our bodies differently. Um folks with uteruses, folks without just really how kind of like what does it look like right the medical industrial complex is very visceral and violent and intense, and a lot of people are still not getting the care they they need or have needed in it period um and in the midst recognizing that we are gonna need clinics, we are gonna need um like you know i if there are folks navigating. Deep into second trimester pregnancies and want to navigate having an abortion at home. Like there, we have to consider going to other states, right? Like there is, we are going to need to have, um, folks who are trained, clinicians, OBs, midwives. We need a full spectrum of folks ready to support people still. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think this, this moment does, pose a really um important time to for folks to really be able to um access what I don't know autonomy looks like in this because we've maybe some folks have been doing it like I've said and also but never quite on this collective level have we I have I experienced it in my lifetime um I feel inspired by the healers and midwives and herbalists and organizers who um who have been ready and who are ready to show up for folks and support people in their own power and liberation um so that makes me that that still gives me hope
1: (laughs) i'm curious what you think about um you know i've seen like sites like uh plan c Mm -hmm. which are set up so people can get like a you know, so-called like abortion pills and stuff like that. hmm hmm What do you see as either the possibilities or limits of that? Uh, just you mm. know, people like stockpiling those and making them available. <sighs> I'm just curious your thoughts on, on great the pills themselves.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um. So I work with international partners. Um. And I support folks, you know, in navigating uh with pills and beyond and. I think that a lot of these orgs have been preparing big increase, right? Um, by also recognizing it's still the minds, like people want people's natural tendency, even good, amazing, smart, kind people <laughs> are still wanting to stockpile, right? And that you have to resist the urge to do that. So they, they, I know that they have, I'm not familiar as much with Plan C's policies around it, but at least, um, how folks are looking at what is ethical in a time of deep unethics happening around like getting folks care that are currently pregnant versus like also providing um, pills and support for folks who are providing the care Um, because there are some folks who are, you know, midwives who don't have prescribing powers, right? But also it's a larger conversation then about like there are providers um who are willing to to step above and beyond for folks and I see that happening. And that is another piece that I think they haven't quite calculated in yet that you have these sites who are of the like they are still definitely legal. You still can go into them, you can still ask questions, get resources and or get deliveries um from them. Um and also this other whole other piece of it, of it happening, which I've t- talked about a little bit, which is just this, um, deep underground movement, which I know not all, I'm not telling everyone to go underground and trying to access pills because that is a very scary slippery slope. Um, and there I, that is another fear and concern I, that I have that's popping up. Um, but yeah, so I think that there's always in this, in this society a uh, 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 slippery slope that can happen around like resource allocation <laughs> to say to, to to keep it short um similar to what we're seeing with formula right um and anytime that there's a resource that's in need and what happens when whoever it is is administering that um can pose some cause for concern um but i know that like again, a lot of these orgs, Plan C, Aid Access have been around a while and have been preparing for a while. Um, so I would say, um, start, start there. Trust your sources too, um, for folks who are considering, um, going underground with, with navigating getting pills in any way, shape or form too, because, um, yeah, there's some deep concerns around around that for folks right now, for sure.
1: Well, we want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, talk to us. You know, you brought up wanting to talk about different resources and stuff. like oh, that. Oh yeah, for sure. Are there any yeah. sort of groups that you want to kind of put on people's radar, or different resources that you want to?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, thank you for this opportunity
1: for me to blabber about,
0: about this work. Um, I really am grateful for it and, and love that y'all are holding space for these conversations to be had. So thank you for that. Um, And yeah, so if, when, how has a repro legal hotline for folks who are um, navigating potential legal implications of um, navigating their care, if, uh, please, 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 please look them up. If, when, how repro legal hotline. Um, Folks navigating, needing emotional support for navigating the full spectrum of pregnancy, parenting, abortion, adoption, all options, talk line, a uh, great place to start, um, non-judgmental, um, confidential, um, anonymous support. Uh, additionally, Repro Care for navigating. Um, if you're looking for some support in navigating, um, your experience whether that's navigating in the herbal and or herbal and medical abortion um they also have a hotline that can support folks in that um and also the miscarriage and abortion hotline um uh, if you are you know needing some additional support outside of the current provisional care model if going to your ob does not feel safe of going to your midwife does not feel you still wanting some um back support in your navigations. that's another excellent excellent resource to go to um and yeah again um if you're looking for ways to show up in community on community levels for this work i definitely recommend hitting up abortion funds in your area local independent abortion funds um because they are on the ground with people and happen on the ground so and then you all each other like we are we are We are our own resources too. So continue to support each each other and show up in the ways that are aligned and rest. Please rest. Get rest. Rest is liberation. So, yeah.
1: get into what's going on in the streets of akron this has been sort of one of the larger flashpoints that's happened since biden has been in office i believe there was the situation that was playing out in michigan where there was somebody that was uh, murdered by the police there very similar situation involving a traffic stop we had somebody on the podcast to talk about that there was a 25 year old man jalen walker that was stopped by the police at a traffic stop he got out of the car uh, ran and was shot over 60 times from what I read. After he was shot, he was then handcuffed before they attempted to administer first aid. And then an ambulance was called. He was taken to the hospital while handcuffed and arrived there horrifically uh, dead from his injuries from the police. Um, but I believe there was like eight officers, eight or seven, that fired a total of over 60 times. I mean, just a, a brutal barrage of bullets but what are your thoughts just out of the gate before we
2: talk about what happened next it's really important to for people to understand where akron ohio is um akron ohio is about 40 minutes from cleveland um for those of you that have been keeping track at home uh the cleveland police are notoriously brutal um this was the police department that murdered tamir rice the Cleveland police were the police department behind the 137 Shots case that Netflix made an entire documentary about. That this is a part of the country that the Serial podcast did an entire series about court corruption in. Right. So this is a part of the country where some of the most violent, corrupt police departments in the entire United States are. And so Akron, Ohio, is a, a city of of around 200,000 people. Um, it's about 45 minutes south of Cleveland and um unlike the city of cleveland uh it is much wider than the city of cleveland right it's it's a city that is smaller and wider and you know people pay less attention to what goes on there than in a big city like cleveland or cincinnati or toledo or something like that um and so often things kind of go under the radar in a place like akron um even for people that live in the region it's not always really particularly clear what happens in these kind of smaller, medium-sized cities, right? Um, and so things like the long history of Akron police violence is not talked about as much as it's talked about in, say, a place like Cleveland or a place like Chicago or something where police violence is a pretty constant um, sort of factor of everyday life, right? And it is very much that in Akron as well. Um, but what you have in Akron Unlike in a lot of other cities in that part of the country, is you have a very, very, very deeply entrenched white democratic power structure. Uh, a lot of those cities are run by Democrats and have been run by Democrats for a long time. But most of those county democratic parties in a lot of cities in the Rust Belt are not primarily uh, made up of white politicians. But in Akron, that's different. Um, the mayor is a long time. Summit County Democratic Party operative who is like in his 60s. He's a white guy, former business person. Right. So on, so on. Um, So what we see in. A place like this, or what we are seeing in Akron right now. Is, you know, protests that kind of started after Jalen Walker was killed, but they really picked up on Sunday when the body cam footage came out. Because what you saw in the body cam footage, for those of you that haven't seen it. Um is cops lining up and firing volley style at a person running away. Like, there were seven cops there, there were 90 shots fired. That means every single cop emptied their entire magazine. Right? Seven cops emptied their entire magazines of ammunition at one person running away. The only other case I can think of that's anything even like that um, involving a traffic stop and that many shots getting fired is actually the 137 shots case, which again happened in Cleveland. Very similar situation, right? Um, The cops are sort of chasing a car because they thought they heard gunshots. They couldn't prove anything, but they thought they heard gunshots start chasing the car. Now in the 137 shots case, the Cleveland police decided to line up in a circle around the car after it stopped. And open fire. All of them, 15 of them, just lined up in a circle around this car and just opened fire, to the point where a couple of them accidentally grazed each other. Uh, at the end of the 137 Shots case, Michael Brelo, who uh, was a, a cop in Cleveland at the time, jumped up on the hood of the car and emptied his entire magazine into the two people in the front seat who were already dead. That's the kind of stuff that happens in that part of the country. And that's what happened with Jalen Walker. Talk a little bit about the Tamir Rice case, because
1: that's a very important case, and I feel like just because it's been a few years since that, it's almost been overshadowed uh, by other cases. I mean, we just had the anniversary of Philando Castile being murdered uh, six years ago. You know, we just passed the two years since uh, George Floyd. Talk about the importance of the Tamir Rice case.
2: So Tamir Rice was a, a 12-year-old kid um, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and in 2014, he was up at uh, what is called the Cadell Recreation Center. It's sort of like a public rec center in the city um, and was was doing what kids do, right? They were playing at the rec center. He had a toy gun, which is like very normal for kids to have. Somebody called in a call about a person who might have a weapon in the park. The dispatcher called into the police and said, there's a person with a gun in the park. The cops showed up and before the the cop who killed tamir rice his name is timothy Lohman. before timothy Lohman was even out of the car he had already shot tamir rice and killed him and the video shows him opening the door while opening fire
1: tamir rice was
2: young african-american 12 years old yeah he was a 12 year old um they then detained and brutalized his sister who was there um the cleveland police union then tried to smear the mother uh samaria rice By claiming that she was, you know, just raising hell because she wanted money, all this really racist, horrible stuff. And it sparked six months of demonstrations in Cleveland where people were blocking roads and bridges and all kinds of stuff. Um, now there for, you know, people I talked to there, that was a game changing situation in in that city. It, It changed everything. Um, it made it impossible to ignore police violence, which in Cleveland is endemic. Um not just now, but has always been. And so the Tamir Rice case was kind of this mobilizing moment where something happened that was just so horrific that it was impossible to ignore. And it happened right around the time that the Mike Brown killing happened, right? It happened right around the time that riots had broken out in Baltimore. And so around Freddie Gray getting killed. And so, you know, it was sort of this illustration of endemic police violence, right? Um, And it kind of was a part of this sort of trajectory that we've been on, I think, since 2014, where you have situations in, say, Democratic-run cities like Cleveland, which, you know, if you look at Cleveland's political history, is like heavily Democratic, has been for generations. Um, You look at cities like that and then you look at what happened here, With Tamir Rice, right, or Jalen Walker. Um and the way that cities respond, right, and how different that is. And so in the city of Cleveland, what happened was the Department of Justice came in, there was a consent decree put in place, nothing changed. The City of Cleveland gutted any kind of meaningful reforms, the police unit gutted whatever was left. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. And so when rioting broke out in Cleveland in 2020, it was particularly vicious, right? And all of that was indicative of the failure of reform missile. Now, in a place like Akron, um, there wasn't the same kind of ferocity to the demonstrations, right, uh, in 2020. I mean, that happened definitely. There was definitely some confrontation, but it, it didn't have the same ferocity that had up in Cleveland. Um and part of that, I think, has to do with sort of political histories. Uh, but part of that also has to do with histories of people and their confrontation with the police. And there's a much longer history in a city like Cleveland of things like armed struggle against the police than there is in smaller places, right? And so the dynamics between cops and people in the city are really different, often in really big Rust Belt cities than they are in kind of medium-sized Rust Belt cities like Akron. Um, the Tamir Rice case was kind of this moment in which... I think for a lot of people, they started actually paying attention to what goes on in places like this for the first time. Right. That it was, again, so horrific. That all of a sudden life in the Rust Belt became something people paid attention to, um, because the other dynamic that happens in this in this part of the country is. It's sort of a forgotten corner of the United States. It's. This place where, I mean, Cleveland is the first or second poorest city in the country. Um, Akron is not that much better off. And nobody pays any attention to what goes on in places like this. And so the police often can operate with total impunity until something like this happens. And then there's kind of this pushback that people start paying attention to. Um, now, what's happened in Akron and again, this has to do with the fact that Akron is, you know, a small, medium-sized city 200,000 people, um, is that the reaction of the police uh, has been brute force. That's not like a lot of us see in big cities where, you know, the cops will gas people and they'll shoot rubber bullets at people, but there's a sense in which there's a level of strategic control that it's not just straight up a police riot, right? Like they're not just cracking skulls. There's strategy involved, right? What's happening down in Akron right now, uh, if there is a strategy, it's impossible to discern. Um, so far, they have <laughs> tear gassed a crowd of people for one person kicking over a bike barricade, a whole crowd of people. They sent riot police into a crowd to arrest people before the curfew went into effect on Monday. They've been brutalizing people in the jail, that there's people that have reported broken bones. Um, there's people that have been hospitalized. Um, Jacob Blake senior, so Jacob Blake junior was uh, the the person at the center of the the you know riots in Kenosha, right? Was the person who was shot that sparked the riots in Kenosha. His father was knocked unconscious by the Akron police and put in critical condition. And then when people showed up at the hospital the police threatened to tear gas people in the parking lot of the biggest hospital in the city. And these were people
1: that were viciously beaten by the police. I mean, you can watch the video. Viciously. I mean, they are, viciously. it looks like unhinged UFC cage fighting, like people yep. hitting people like with underarm uppercuts and just dogpiling on folks. I mean, it was
2: brutal. Yeah. Well, and the copy through the first punch is a member of a white supremacist police game. Big surprise right? I mean, that's another thing about cities in the Rust Belt of often is police gangs are really a thing, uh, kind of like in Los Angeles. Like, that's that's a real reality. And so, what's happening there... I mean, like, today they declared essentially an indefinite curfew over the entire downtown area of the city. Um, what's happening there is really astonishing. And I haven't really seen uncontrolled naked police violence in this way. Um since Miami in 2003. In Miami, many people were so traumatized that I, I know a lot of people that never went to another demonstration their entire life after the Miami FTA in 2003, um, that the police just viciously attacked people. Just like in Akron, they were driving around in cars and vans and hunting people down on side streets. They were pointing guns at people, just like what's happening in Akron today. Um, and police in the United States had this kind of shift in the way that they policed protest after Miami because of the sheer volume of lawsuits and the fact that that level of police confrontation tends to escalate situations. So there's been this shift in the way that crowd control happens since that point. What's happening in Akron is police tactics from 20 years ago. Um, and it's I think there's a lot of reasons why. There's a lot of people trying to analyze why. Uh, but I think a lot of it really comes down to the fact that, again... This is a small, medium-sized city. Cops in places like that don't get the kind of training that cops in big cities do. They don't have the same kind of command structures. They don't have the same formality. They don't have the same rigidity, right? And so there's a lot more of this sort of skull-cracking, we need to stay in power all the time kind of mentality, and a lot less of this, we're just going to give the crowd this kind of space to like decelerate the situation kind of mentality. Um, that's been really, really striking. And so, you know, so far, the media hasn't paid almost any attention to this. Uh, Jacob Blake Sr. getting hospitalized by the police uh, has become a news story literally this afternoon as we're recording this. Um, but really up until that point around the U.S., people were not really paying attention to what was going on there. And everybody needs to be paying attention to what is going on in Akron, Ohio right now. People need to be doing solidarity demonstrations in their towns. People need to be, you know, calling journalists and trying to you know talk them into covering the story people need to be doing events and fundraisers and raising money for bail um people on the ground are stretched you know uh it's a really intense situation and people that i'm talking to are are tired and they're stretched and they need support and they need people they need to feel like people out there have their back because again nobody ever pays attention to places like this and when something like this happens we need to pay attention to places like this and so this is far from over i think um i know that there's demonstrations planned for this weekend already um and you know who knows who knows how that those will play out but if the last week is indicative of anything um this could still be going on for for a bit of time and so we all need to be stepping it up right now for them for the people on the ground so there's some really solid awesome people on the ground there and they're doing along with other people from around Ohio they're doing amazing work in incredibly dangerous remarkably adverse circumstances um we really need to have their back on this it's really important i think central to the state
1: and i say the state I mean like the the local power structure there and the police which has been picked up and reverberated by the mainstream media. I think central to kind of what they're putting out is that because of the violence (laughs) that's happening in town, they had to instill a curfew. I mean, the violence they're talking about was some windows of some trucks. This is what I saw reported Mm -hmm. some windows Mm -hmm. of some trucks that were put up around to like block people's movement and also some windows in the downtown. And according to the report that we published on It's Going Down, then it's now been shared around 500 times, and it's got thousands of hits on the site. Uh, the person on the ground, they were talking about that the property destruction didn't even happen until after the police were tear-gassing people. Yeah. So yeah. it was sort of you know an angry response to the police violently attacking people. And remember, people were protesting outside the police station, and the police came out in full riot gear and began protesting against them. Uh, yeah, yep. You know, which is – You know, last time I checked, is not illegal to do. I mean, not to put everything under the rubric of the state's laws, but just to show that it can't even abide by its own laws that it's supposed to follow. But again, they cloak everything in this language of stopping violence, when in reality it's just to justify their own much more massive real violence, which is against people, causing them physical pain, attacking them, tear gassing Tear-gassing them, beating them, hitting them with projectile and chemical weapons, putting them in jail. I mean, that's actual physical violence, not the, the breaking of a couple windows,
2: which are paid for by insurance anyway. Well, and you can you can tell that this was a retroactive justification for anyone that was watching what was happening there on Sunday. So as people were marching past the police station, not only were the cops literally counter-protesting in riot gear, but on the other side of the police station, they had a Blue Lives Matter flag flying off a flagpole two armored personnel carriers, and about 15 or 20 cops. Now, what was interesting about this, as I was watching this, was really striking, is of those cops, one of those cops had the kind of stereotypical orange shotgun that we've all seen, right, that shoots beam backgrounds. The rest of them kitted out, locked and loaded AR-15s. No bulletproof vests. They weren't expecting people to shoot at them. They just had assault weapons on them. I haven't seen that in a very long time. That level of overt confrontationalism. Two hours later, they were tear gassing people. Then stuff got broken. Right? The Akron police approached this confrontationally from the beginning. That their goal was to go out there and crush this before it picked up momentum. And they did not do that. If anything else, they have, they are... At least a significant reason why the inertia is not just continuing but picking up there that when we hit sunday of this upcoming week that'll be a week since the body cam footage was released and people are still going to be moving there and they're going to be moving for potentially kind of a while um what the akron police have done doesn't matter what anyone's politics are is unjustifiable. It's uh impossible to even conceive of what they think they're trying to do here. Um, it's like they don't seem to understand that video cameras exist and that live streamers exist and that when you do stuff like this, you call down people from all over the country, not even to necessarily show up in person on the ground, but to be running support and cover for the people that are. That they're calling down something that they've never experienced and don't understand. And they're doing that in a way that is incredibly uncontrollable. And so right now, unfortunately, um, it looks very much like they are primed to continue that approach yet again this evening and tomorrow, and probably through Saturday, at least. Um, that this is going to be the reality of the people there. People I've already talked to there um, have reported things like getting followed around, um having cops pointing rifles at people just on sidewalks, right? I mean, real police state stuff, right? Like real over-the-top police state stuff.
1: Now, this is what Republicans and a lot of people on the far right dream about. This is what they want the state to do. And this is happening under Democratic
2: leadership. Mm-hmm. This is also what the Democrats want, too. I mean, like, well, Joe course. Biden is the president. Joe Biden wrote the crime bill. Joe Biden is the one who wants to fund the police more than Trump did. Like, the Democrats want all this, too. Right. right? But the Democrats will run on
1: this, you know, sort of this yes. air of, like, we want to reform the police. We want to give them more money so they'll have better training, whatever right. that means. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, both parties, I mean, this is the end result of funding the police, of militarizing them. And I think this is interesting that this is happening, you know, so soon after uh, the Uvalde uh, yeah. massacre. I mean, we really need to re- to like go back and remember why so many people were upset. I mean, it's the same stuff at play, you know. Mm-hmm, it's the police mm-hmm. being militarized. It's the police viewing the population in general as the threat in treating them as the threat as opposed to like being some sort of organic self-defense unit within society that we just kind of create because we need to protect ourselves. No, this is an outside force that's imposed upon us that has no interest in keeping us safe. It has nothing to do with stopping violence. It's about imposing violence of the state on people, which is totally not in our interest, of course, and ends up hurting more people and inflicting pain harassment and trauma on them. And it's like you said, it's very important that we shine a light on this because the media is definitely repeating whatever the police are putting out. And I think that's the other aspect too, is that this shows that again, the media hasn't learned its lesson that the police lie <laughs> and the, All the, pol- time. the police, you know, are very acute at this point in many trying to manufacture a narrative that they want to reverberate within the rest of society. So they want to make it appear that they're just simply responding to the violence of the demonstration, and that's why they have to curtail people's rights. I mean, it's interesting, you know, they went from the first night to, you know, oh, everyone was so violent, a few windows got broken, too. We had to have a curfew. And then the second night, outside of the curfew zone, because, again, they had – A curfew downtown and then people were outside the jail which is not downtown it's not in the curfew zone and they were banging on pots and pans then the police change it to that they were being disruptive of the other inmates and they were somehow you know negatively impacting them letting them know that they were outside supporting them that they had to go out and tear gas the protesters that were outside the jail right it again it's just This is a state of exception again. Like there are no, there are no democratic rights. The police basically get to just, you know, put the goalpost wherever they want to. And then if they don't like your protest, they're going to smash you. And again, that's what we've been seeing over the past couple of days. And like you said, I think now it's starting to blow back on them because they've made some high profile arrests of people who at this point the media essentially has to report on it because these are people that you know, have name recognition on them. So they're going to have to start talking about what's been going on. And you're starting to see a lot more articles um, about the tear gassing and about the attack. So I think we're going to start to see it, the narrative shift a little bit.
2: Yes, we need to make the city of Akron pay for this decision, right? This was a conscious decision. Like, I can tell you as a person who's been doing this stuff for a long time, this is not generally something that happens randomly that this level of organized police violence is a conscious decision, right? Somewhere in the Akron city government, they decided that the right thing to do was to unceasingly brutalize people with absolutely zero consideration for their safety, their political rights, essentially anything, the long-term negative ramifications of their actions, right? But they made a conscious decision, right? This is not random. And cities around the country need to understand what happens when they make decisions like this. They need to understand that the world's going to be paying attention to everything that happens there. They need to understand that the lawsuits are going to land with a big, giant thud that they can't afford to pay. That they need to learn that when they do this, and solidarity is called for that solidarity happens. And that people start to show up to back people up and to relieve people that are exhausted. Right? Cities like this need to learn that you cannot just decide that we live in a state of exception without consequence. Right? And the only way that that lesson gets learned is through solidarity actions, through people jumping in, helping out, making this continue, calling attention to it, making sure that everybody's talking about it, making sure that ends up on TV everywhere. Right. Everyone needs to know what's happening there. Everybody needs to see this because it's not just about the murder of Jalen Walker anymore. Now it is about. An approach which illustrates the problem of policing in general. Right. That apparently in the state of Ohio. If the cops think they hear a gunshot and you get out of your car and run, they murder you. But if you stay in your car, they murder you. And at the point where that's the reality, the response that we're seeing in Akron or the response that we saw in a place like Cleveland during the uprising should surprise absolutely nobody. And the only way that, that people there are going to be able to continue this fight, which this is going to be a long fight that is going to have to gut the entire political culture of that city. Right? The entire kind of reformist, democratic political culture of that city. Um, for that to happen, we all need to be pitching in. We all need to be doing our part. We need to be backing people up. Right? Like I said, people on the ground there, um, endless admiration. They are doing amazing things. They are incredibly, incredibly persistent. They're going out every night, multiple times a night, and getting tear gassed everywhere they go. And they're still going out there. And they're still supporting people. They've bailed every single person out that's been arrested. Every single person. Right? It's astonishing the amount of things that they're able to do between the people that are from the city and the people that have come in to help support. It is absolutely incredible. But we can't let those people do that stuff alone. You know, there are links to the bail fund that are out there. Groups are starting to pass out online. They're starting to pass out sort of resource request lists and wish lists on different shopping platforms. Um, there's calls for solidarity actions that are starting to go out. We need to really embrace those. Um, if we let this go without people paying attention to it, this incident will disappear like it never happened. Because, again, nobody pays attention to a place like Cleveland or a place like Akron. And so if nobody raises holy hell around the U.S. about this, it'll be like nothing ever occurred. We can't let this go in silence. Like, the culture of policing in that part of the country is uh, hazardous to the lives of, of the people that live there. That's true everywhere. But in this part of the country, you see clear, concentrated illustrations of that over and over and over again in ways that are just incredibly excessive. Like cops volley firing on people. Cops shooting people that are already dead. That kind of stuff. Right? We can't let that go. We can't let that go. We have to make sure that the people on the ground there feel like the rest of us have their back
1: all right switching gears now we're going to discuss this recent article that came out in the washington post it says inflation is making homelessness worse we've been talking about the housing crisis uh for years now i'm sure most people reading this are renters of some sort i know i am uh you're paying every month uh that's going up while wages of course are not uh catching up with that. I think there's a couple of big takeaways from this article. Um, it's based around a couple of different studies and it's talking about how more people are becoming homeless and houseless as rents continue to rise. This has been a trajectory that's been happening for a long time but it's really exacerbated during the pandemic. It says for every $100 increase in medium rent is associated with a 9% increase in the estimated homelessness rate according to a 2000 20 report by the U S government accountability office. So this is literally from two years ago. I'm sure it's probably much higher than that, but think yeah. about that. Every $100 increase in medium rent is associated with a 9% increase in the estimated homelessness rate. I mean, that's just astronomical. Then mm-hmm. now na- it goes on to say the national medium asking rent jumped from a record 2000 in May up fifteen percent from seventeen hundred a year ago, according to Redfin. So I mean that's almost a three hundred dollar increase right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, it goes on to say, meanwhile, local rents have risen twenty-two percent from the beginning of the pandemic. Again, this really chips away at this idea that people are, you know, living large, that, you <laughs> know, the economy is doing so great. And wages are up, man. Haven't you seen that McDonald's is offering $16 an hour? Everything's amazing. You know, you have no right to complain. I mean, you might have even heard this from a lot of liberals that are, you know, trying to save face for Biden. Um, I mean, yes, in many instances, they are offering more to get people to continue to work there but those small increases um barely make up for and do not make up for the amount that is being taken away from us by rents rising so much and things like the astronomical cost of gas you know everything else that we're buying going up you know, astronomically, the costs of food, transportation, education, health care, all those things are skyrocketing. Um, meanwhile, that's taking away from the small increase in wages that still hasn't caught up from, you know, where it should be. I mean, the again, the federal minimum wage hasn't been raised for over 10 years, despite what Kid Rock uh, says in his <laughs> latest MAGA anthem. <laughs> um,
2: but yeah, your thoughts on this. Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about this sort of reality that that we're in in which uh we're starting to see these kind of you know paradoxes in capitalism kind of start to play themselves out, right? And and this kind of dynamic between um the consumption index, right? So people buying stuff and the ability of the economy to continue to function, right? Um now during the pandemic, the subsidies were about maintaining the consumption index, maintaining a base level of consumption, which is also what you know, social services in the United States, like welfare and Section 8, generally are. They're, they're ways to guarantee market stability, right? Um, even more so than they are sort of programs that help people deal with the fallout of capitalism. Um, they are also programs which help guarantee the stability of capitalism. Um, and so... When we're looking at at scenarios like this, what we're starting to see is we're starting to see inflation sort of expand at a rate in which now, all of a sudden, people can't buy as much stuff anymore, that it's exceeding their ability to be able to afford things without having to take out debt. Um, now, what has happened in the United States since the 1970s is essentially a much longer version of that. Um, that starting in about 1973, um, real wages, so real wages being the amount of stuff you can buy for the amount of money you get paid, started dropping and have continued to drop consistently all the way up until today. That the millennial generation will be the first generation to make less than its parents, right, and also be saddled with way more debt than their parents. And that is actually the reality for most people. Now, you can see if you look at the numbers for sort of American economic growth since the mid-70s, it doesn't seem to indicate that, right? That there's been consistent economic growth with, you know, hiccups and crises here and there since the 1970s. But it's been a, in aggregate, a more or less upward trajectory, right? So how is that possible? How is it possible that people make less, yet the economy is growing? Because that doesn't make any sense. Unless we start to think of one additional variable, which is debt. So the other thing that happened in the 1970s was credit cards. General credit cards, not store cards, not credit cards for the wealthy. Normal people were able to get a credit card and use a credit card in any store. And when that happened, you started to see consumption go up, even though wages were dropping. And so what did people do? Well, they had to figure out other ways to generate cash, right? And so for a lot of people, that became owning a house, right? This is what led to the, the real estate crisis. As people decided that homes were a good place to stash value, they were sort of purchasing homes that was driving the home price up and people were refinancing their homes over and over and over again to make up for that gap, right? People were spending on their credit cards to make up that gap. And right now, when you see dynamics like inflation accelerate like they are now, people are relying on debt a lot more heavily than in other situations. And so what we're really watching, what we've been watching for the better part of a few years now, is this kind of hollowing out of the economy, right? So Trump and Trump supporters like to talk about how great the economy was under Trump because the stock market went up. The stock market did go up. Stock market's been going up pretty consistently since the 70s, again, with the exception of these hiccups and crises here and there. So how how does that happen? Well, the stock market doesn't actually say anything about the actual economy that most of us exist in. Um, most of the stock market is like most stock is owned by the extremely wealthy. I think the top 1% owns something like over 80% of all the outstanding stock in the United States, right? It's like a really, really uneven dynamic like that. It's something really absurd like that. Um, and what they're doing is they're taking things like bailouts, tax breaks, stuff like that, and they are investing it in stock or assets of other sorts. Um, and the theory always was, well, great. When that happens, then companies will hire more people. But that's not what happens because trickle down economics is a fiction. And in reality, what's happened is that, well, people buy stock. The stock price goes up because people buy stock. So they sell it and then they buy other stock, which causes the price to go up. So they sell it. And they buy other stock. And so just the the idea of, of stock itself has become a commodity that is an end in itself. It is no longer about owning a part of a company or getting you know derivative payments out of that or something like that. It, it's really purely about just having this thing that's going to increase in value. It's cryptocurrency, right? Just less volatile, literally. Um, and it has no impact on what economists call the real economy, really. I mean, it has some, but it's definitely not indicative of what happens in the real economy. Another number which is indicative of the real economy is the unemployment rate, right? The unemployment rate only counts people collecting unemployment. But there's a lot of people in the U.S. that have been unemployed for so long. They're no longer collecting unemployment. And they are listed as people that are, quote, out of the workforce, which don't count as people that are unemployed right? When we look at inflation numbers, we see another variant of this, right? Inflation numbers are calculated based on price increases. But in the United States, when that's calculated, it's calculated without gas and food expenses, because gas and food is considered too volatile to be able to calculate into an inflation rate. Now, what goes up faster than everything else in moments of inflation? Well, gas and food, right? And so the inflation rate officially, as written down, doesn't even really tell us much of anything. So what we have to look at is the realities that we're seeing, the realities that we're living, and sort of the trends that we're seeing across the country. And this sort of massive increase in people sort of ending up without consistent housing, sort of being precariously housed or unhoused, um, just the massive, massive increases in that would seem to indicate a far worse economic reality than the numbers do. And so what's fascinating to me about stories like this is these stories are very jarring, I think, when we accept the narrative that really things are kind of bad and there's inflation, but it's really not that bad. Look at these numbers. It's really not that bad. It's going to get better. When we actually look at phenomena like the sheer amount of people that are ending up either precariously housed or unhoused, um, and we notice that that doesn't reflect anything about the reality that the numbers seem to construct, we have to start understanding the world in a very different way, right? And in a lot of ways, this is endemic in capitalism. Like, what does capitalism do? It, it abstracts um, the elements of life into quantities that can be exchanged right, it in itself is a structure of abstraction, right? It's not a structure which speaks to life at all. It's a structure which functions to the degree that life conforms to it. But what we are seeing now is that separation point between how the economy is portrayed quantitatively and the qualitative reality of living within capitalism is getting, that gap is getting wider and wider and wider and wider. And so as we're going forward, I mean, yes, we're going to see protests about things like this, especially if the situation gets worse, and we're going to see a lot of journalists and economists very surprised by that, but that should surprise none of us. Um, any of us that live in a place where there's low-income people at all have, I'm sure, seen increases in things like encampments, seen increases in things like lines outside of shelters or lines outside of soup kitchens, right? Right. Any of us that live in a place with low-income people have seen that. And what we're starting to experience now is a world in which we're not even talking about people who are unemployed necessarily. That the actual cost of housing has gone up so much at this point that we are talking we're, – we're starting to watch the phenomena that happened in a place like San Francisco where people who are working service jobs – were also living in tents, and they were living in tents in San Francisco because they couldn't afford the public transportation to get there for their job. Their job paid them that little, and transportation's that expensive, that the only economically viable option was to live in a tent on the street, even though you worked full-time. That is the reality we're starting to see all over the United States, right? Right. Um, And that's a very different kind of housing precarity than we're used to seeing. Um, But what it really is indicative of is the fact that the pain and the suffering of this sort of economic crisis that is already very much occurring is not something that will occur in the future, but is happening right now that that pain and suffering is not just a result of dynamics that happened under the coronavirus, but is really a result of dynamics that happened under the coronavirus on the back of these dynamics that have been gutting our wages for the better part of 50 years, right? And so really, this is just one more very clear example of dynamics of capitalism, creating conditions which not only lead to lives that are very difficult to live, but also creates conditions in which capitalism itself threatens its own existence out of its own paradox. Here's some more from the article. It says, even those
1: who are still in their homes and are working jobs, sometimes even jobs that pay you know, a decent wage, the prospect of suddenly being displaced is creeping closer. An estimated 13.7 million Americans, and again, just to put this in perspective, I mean, we just hit the horrific milestone not that long ago of 1 million people in the U.S. dying of COVID-19. And I think at this point, everyone can kind of feel the ramifications of that number. I mean, all of us, I'm sure listening to this, know somebody that's either passed away or gotten really sick or been totally impacted or, you know, you've gotten it yourself of Mm COVID-19. I mean, it seems like a lot more than a million. Well, of course it is. The people, not that only have died, but have, you know, contracted the virus. So... So that just kind of gives you um, a way to kind of gauge, I mean, just how big 13.7 million people is. It says 13.7 million Americans are behind on their rent or mortgage payments in early June, up 7% from April. 4.6 million adults say they are somewhat likely or very likely to lose their homes by eviction or foreclosure in the next two months, a 32% increase from early April. Experts are saying that about 20% of people without a home are considered chronically homeless and living on the streets or shelters. The vast majority, however, lack a permanent address, but have been patching together living arrangements where they can, sleeping with friends or living in their car. So this means that the vast majority of people, they're newly in that position. They've been pushed there, and which is just incredible. I mean, these are people with jobs, with families. I mean, think about the economic impact of that yeah. and two yeah. I mean for those of us that are thinking about collective action and organizing folks and also to our own survival because this is us in this situation too we can't remove mm-hmm. ourselves from this um, you know we've got to be thinking about this what does this mean for millions and millions of people across the United States to suddenly be in this situation and we know one of the things about America too and we saw this with the Great Recession in 2008 sometimes it takes a while for people to understand that it's the system's fault it's not their fault you know we've talked about this before this dynamic of you know people leaving their far close house in the middle of the night because they don't want to be seen by their neighbors as somebody that's you know you know hasn't made it within capitalism somehow it's their fault that this is happening no it's not i mean people are working their butts off in this system i mean they're putting their kids through school they're getting up they're juggling different jobs and what do they get for it? Well, they get a life where they can't even afford to put a roof over their head. Is that our Mm -hmm. fault? No, it's not. It's a system that's literally out of control. That's trying to get every single cent it can from us, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) both on the shop floor and as consumers, we're getting screwed at both ends. So, and it, just like you said, I mean, this is not a sustainable system. Eventually this comes crashing down, hopefully Mm -hmm. because of people fed up by it or it will come crashing down because people just can't afford to go out and buy stuff and the economy crashes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is, you know, in 2008 and nine, you know, thinking back to that era, um, one of the slogans that like insurrectionists anarchists used to use all the time was that we need to become the crisis. Right. And what that meant was that, the crisis as we were experiencing it was sort of this passive phenomena, right? That it was a thing that was happening to us. And it was destroying the ability of capitalism to continue to function, but it was doing that in such a way that didn't give us any more control over our lives. It actually made us significantly more precarious. And so if the collapse of capitalism requires a crisis, not necessarily an economic crisis, but a crisis nonetheless, right? Whether it's political or economic or both, the only way that we come out of that situation With more control over the conditions of our existence is if we decide how that crash happens. That it's not a passive phenomena, that it's an active phenomena. And that in moments in which it becomes strikingly apparent, just like how like the situation in Akron is making the core of policing and the violence of sovereignty very, very, very apparent, right? In all of its guises. What we saw in something like 2008 or what we're seeing now is making the fundamental nature of capital and living within capitalism really obvious, right? It's creating a crisis of its own making. But what we need to do in those situations is not allow the crisis to just happen, right? It's, you know, there's plenty of people... I don't want to use the term accelerationist because I don't think that's accurate. There's plenty of people out there um, who make the argument that, well, if, if the situation just gets bad enough, then it'll just fall apart. That's true. It will, but not necessarily in the way that we want. And so if we're going to have this act of control over our lives, that means that we have to participate in the crisis as it emerges, right? Or just become the crisis in itself. Because right now... Hundreds of thousands of people are getting thrown out of their houses and ending up on the street. You know, right now, cops in Akron, Ohio feel it's entirely okay to just institute a state of exception without any real justification and just do that with total impunity. Right? We are starting to see these paradoxes and contradictions become very, very apparent. In a way that I would say even in 2020, it wasn't as apparent that we're watching increased degradation even from that point. And really, what we're seeing is we're seeing all of the signs of system collapse. Right? Like if you really if you talk to political scientists, um, when they talk about systemic collapse, this is what they talk about, right? They talk about social conflict. They talk about the state being completely out of control. In its attempt to sort of hold on to power, they talk about sort of um, this kind of economic precarity that, you know, kind of waxes and wanes but never really goes away. Um, and the anger that that generates that, you know, generally you see things like uh, people mass resigning from jobs like we've seen, or you see things like people refusing to support political parties of any sort. All of these things are symptoms of systemic collapse, and we're going to have to learn how to navigate that because that reality that we're watching emerge now is both entirely premised on the economic crisis in 2008 and is an extension of the economic crisis of 2008 uh, which never really actually ended but it's also creating these sorts of conditions in which those crises are starting to add up to the point where capitalism cannot continue
1: you're listening to it's going down part of the channel zero anarchist podcast network Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. Does it look like Trump is going to get in trouble? Um... Where is he at right now? Cause supposedly he's also going to start to tell us if he's going to run for president again. There's, there's a lot of stuff that's up in the air.
2: I think it makes sense to first go over kind of what was incredibly impactful about the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, who is this, uh, she was chief of staff to Mark Meadows for, you know, a good amount of the Trump, I think all the Trump administration the entire time. Um, and kind of occupies this role that I think a lot of people, don't really know exists in D.C., which is, and I think Politico just wrote an article about this, but um one of the things that happens in Washington, D.C., that's kind of hidden, um, not really intentionally, but just because it's kind of a thing that happens in the background, um, is that D.C. is really run by, like, 25-year-olds, right? It's run by, like, law school interns and, you know staff members and aides and executive assistants, like that's what DC is run by. That is how all these people book their meetings. That is how they get from point A to point B. That is how they plan their transportation. That's who liaises them with the media, is who builds their schedule out. Like nothing would happen in Washington DC without an army of 20-somethings, right? Early 20-somethings. What that also means is that said early 20-somethings also happen to end up in rooms a lot of the time where some pretty shady stuff gets discussed. And this is not the first aid, you know, mid 20 something aid to come forward with something like this about a politician. But what was really impactful about that testimony is it filled the gap that we were talking about last week having to be filled. And that gap is this sort of gap in the narrative Um, between the people who organized January 6th and the actual Trump campaign. That what was unable to be shown up until that point was that the Trump campaign not only knew about January 6th, but anticipated it was going to happen in a specific way and then planned their activity around the fact that rioting was going to happen. Now, we know this for a number of reasons. For example, pretty much right after the election, Donald Trump started talking about, like, what would it look like if I showed up on January 6th in the Capitol? What if I just declare myself the winner? Right. People are like, oh, you're not serious. But as time went on, that started becoming an actual plan. And it's like one of these things in Trump world where someone floats something that seems asinine, like just completely asinine. And two months later, it's policy. Right. That happened in this situation. And the question becomes how? So how did that leave the realm of fantasy and become campaign strategy? And the answer actually is Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows. What happened in this situation is that increasingly as the sort of uh, narrative around the election kind of expanded and got louder, a lot of the people that weren't super down with that kind of quietly put themselves in the background and the people that rose to the fore To the forefront were Rudy Giuliani and then eventually people like Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, right? Who are just straight up QAnon people, right? Because what they were doing is they were telling Trump that there was still a chance and everybody else around him was telling him that that wasn't true. And so that indicates a number of things. One, he was shown plenty of information. To indicate that he lost the election legitimately and continue to push the idea that the election was stolen after that fact. And he had been shown dozens of times. His aides who even would admit that they knew that they had lost were still pushing those narratives, right? That's in itself is obstruction of official business, right? That's a federal felony to do something like that, to try and derail the sort of post-election process in the United States uh, through disinformation, right? That in itself is a felony. Like, that's that in itself is pretty bad. But what we started hearing from Cassidy Hutchinson was really fascinating. And that is that as we started getting closer to January 6th, starting really, like, late December, they started talking about, we need to focus on January 6th. January 6th is the big day. We need to, like, this is the day we're going to win. We're going to convince Mike Pence to, you know, not accept the electoral votes or something. Um, and as it started becoming really clear to them over the following days that Mike Pence was not going to do the thing they wanted, all of a sudden, Mark Meadows tells Cassidy Hutchinson, hey, I've got to go to the Willard Hotel, which was where the Trump campaign war room was. So here's a direct correlation between the White House. So Mark Meadows is not a campaign staffer. Keep this in mind. And legally, campaigns and administrations are separate. They have to be. Um, but here you have the White House chief of staff going to a campaign meeting. And when, what he said as he was talking about what was going to happen in that meeting is he said, yeah, we know that these, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are coming and we need to, um, you know, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about like what they're going to do and how we're going to interact with that. By the end of that meeting, Donald Trump had decided he was going to the Capitol. Now that indicates something really interesting to me. Um, Which is that, so their understanding of a coup was actually a lot more sophisticated than it even seemed. Like, we've been talking about this for a while, I think, right? There's been a number of these moments in which, you know, the Trump coup attempt was portrayed as sort of keystone cops, right? Like, it was just a bunch of people fumbling their way through trying to hold on to power. But in reality, it was a lot more, um, a lot more focused than that, a lot more well planned than that. But it still existed in the realm of a political You know, fantasy, essentially the actual plan, the actual plan was that they were going to try and convince Mike Pence to not accept electoral votes. And then if that failed, they were going to cause a riot to go down. They had. So one of the things that Cassidy Hutchinson talks about is Donald Trump gave the speech at the Ellipse on January 6th. And there weren't a lot of people. At the actual speech, a lot of the people were outside the security perimeter because they didn't want to go through the metal detectors because they were armed. And Trump, behind, like backstage, goes, I don't care if they're armed. They're not here to hurt me. Make the metal detectors go away. Meaning he was fully aware that people in the crowd were armed, often with firearms or a number of people, they are 15s and things like that. He was fully aware that none of those people were going to harm him. And he was fully aware of what they were going to do when they left. And he had been talking about marching down to the Capitol for weeks already at that point. And he adds that into his speech that was not in the original transcript of his speech, which he just threw out and just kind of winged it. But the we're going to go march down to the Capitol, I'm going to be with you, was not a part of the speech that his aides wrote. None of the speech that he gave was. Meaning he had made the decision that that's what was going to happen. And what we learned from Cassidy Hutchinson is he had actually made that decision many days prior to that. And so the plan was to cause a riot to happen in a situation that was uncontrollable, that there was no way to secure the capital in any kind of way. And the kind of speculative strategy that they were operating with here is, well, okay, if there's no way to secure the capital, if we got the ability to secure the capital by making all the, you know, making all the metal detectors go away and like. Having Homeland Security issue reports that said that they don't know of any violence, which is something that they did, trying to sort of like talk about the days, if it wasn't going to be all that dangerous, like really sort of downplaying things very intentionally. They did that on purpose to lower the amount of police attention that was going to happen on that action. And their plan very clearly was to have an armed takeover of the Capitol if Mike Pence didn't invalidate the votes. And then Donald Trump was going to roll up there and declare himself in power. That actually is not a half poorly thought out coup attempt at that point. Like that's actually how coup attempts really do happen sometimes. Um And you can look back at the history of coup attempts in the 20th century. Um, and you can see a number of instances in which the people doing the coup sort of sort of used crowds as cover. And so that's what was happening here. That's what was happening here. Now, Pat Cipollini, the White House counsel. On January 5th, essentially sat down. I mean, this is one of these like really important inflection moments, like these moments in which it is very obvious that people know what the score is and they're moving ahead anyways. Right. Um, Pat Cipollini sat down and essentially said, do you have any idea what would happen if you did this? And Trump goes, yeah, I'll be president. And he goes, no, there's going to be blood in the streets in a revolution and you're not going to win that. And he says, you don't want to die like Gaddafi. It's quite a thing to say to a sitting president, right? That's how far we had gone down that rabbit hole. That's how far we had gone down that rabbit hole. Um It was never a situation that was going to result in Trump being in power, but it could have gotten really ugly. Um If he would have declared himself in power, yeah, hundreds of thousands of people would have showed up in DC um, and it would have gotten bad. It would have definitely gotten bad. We were pretty close to that. We were a lot closer than I think a lot of us thought we were. We we're a lot closer than I thought we were. Um And I was studying this very carefully when it was happening. And I've been studying it since. And we were a lot closer than I thought.
1: There's been a lot of talk on an upcoming Supreme Court uh, ruling that's going to happen on essentially, can they make different electors?
2: Yeah. So this is an interesting case. So this case, uh, the case that you're referencing is Moore versus Harper, right? Moore versus Harper um, is kind of a a shadow docket Supreme Court case, meaning that – they sort of decided way ahead of time that they were going to take this case on before it actually worked its way all the way through the courts. What the case is about ultimately is, you know, in the state of North Carolina, there is a redistricting commission, just like in every state. And in a lot of states, including Ohio, North Carolina, there's a number of others. The district maps that get drawn on, on a constitutional level have to reflect the actual electoral breakdown of the state. Now, in both Ohio and North Carolina, that breakdown's like 55, 45 to Republicans and Democrats, and that shifts back and forth. I mean, like, Ohio voted for Obama twice, right? Um, so it, it shifts. And, but the district maps that are getting drawn in both of those states, and I I bring up both those states because I know in Ohio, there's also a supreme, like, state supreme court case about this, but, um, Those district maps are being drawn like 70-30 to benefit Republicans, right, or 80-20 to benefit Republicans, and they're getting shot down in the state Supreme Courts. What the state of North Carolina's legislature is going to argue, so they have a Republican-controlled legislature, what they're going to argue is they're going to argue what is referred to as the independent state legislature theory okay which is like a big fancy legal theory term but essentially what it means is that they they kind of smash some uh elements of of the constitution together that aren't concurrent with each other like different clauses about elections they kind of just cherry pick sentences out of there and smash them together and then if you do that and they kind of look at everything kind of askew with really squinted eyes and a lot of kind of confirmation bias you could in theory make the argument that what is argued in the Constitution, although this is uh, very few legitimate legal scholars accept this idea, but um, under this theory, what's argued in the Constitution is that not only are states um, required to set their own electoral processes, but that state legislatures have absolute sovereignty over that process, and state Supreme Courts cannot do anything about it, and the U.S. Supreme Court cannot do anything about it. And so if a state wants to say, like, all these people in this city, you just can't vote anymore, they just could. That's that's the argument the state of North Carolina is going to make, right? Now, again, I think what is mind-blowing about this sort of attempt is the just overwhelming sense that the people that are trying to do things like this think that the entirety of politics is elections. That what happens... In a place in which there's ostensibly voting, but in reality, everyone knows the outcome is sort of mass political resignation. Right. There's kind of an apathy that takes over and systemic collapse accelerates. Right. You want to have a bunch of people in the streets really angry at you do this because. The thing that Pat Cipollini said to Trump also exists in this situation, because I think as anarchists, we all know politics in a lot of ways has very little to do with electoralism. The politics is something we live. It's something that manifests in our lives every day. Right. And that ultimately we tend to have a lot more power to have control over our lives when we are active and hit the street and are doing things. Right. The reality here is, is that if Trump would have marched up those Capitol steps, or if the state of North Carolina wins this case, we end up in this scenario in which you have a group of people who is overtly declaring sort of fealty to authoritarianism.
1: This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.